Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Joe Serino, together again with Tom Serino and Chuck Stead, talking about our environment and what happens when we abuse it and what we can do to overcome that and move in a very improved direction in the future. You are listening to the Get the Let Out podcast with Dr. Chuck Stead. Chuck has written a book on this called Get the Let Out. You can order that book. Just uh, take a look at some of the verbiage in this episode and uh, you'll get a link there where you can actually order the book and be able to review it yourself in in its entirety. So without any further ado, Chuck, uh, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, we've moved on to a selection from chapter two and the chapter is called Iron from Stone. All right. Without any further ado, Iron from Stone. My grandfather worked at the Ramapo Ironworks. He was there back in the days of the works when they made railroad wheels, track rails, and switch stands. It was a place of hard-working men who knew how to work the hot steel into sand molds at just the right temperature. My grandfather started there as a young man and over the years learned various skills until one day, one day, he drew a steel splinter from a lathe machine. It festered and it affected his right hand. He lost two fingers, the two middle fingers, and he lost his job. But the Davidson shop was not without compensation for John Stead. They set him up in a gas station where he could service their trucks and pump gas for the ever-increasing volume of cars that were coming into the Ramapo Valley, mostly Fords, basic black Model T Ford. That's what they were. And in his new life, he would walk up Lake Road out of the village through the valley there, just past the Presbyterian Church and Cemetery, John Stead pumped gas, changed tires, changed oil, and worked most of his days. Davidson, a manager at the Ironworks, went on to become the school district superintendent. He was a powerful man locally. He was not happy with the advancement of the colored or the Jews. He spoke broadly about folks needing to know their place. He discouraged open talk about the Hill people being Indians. In time, his was an influence over one of John's sons, the oldest one, the one I came to know as Uncle Mal. If Grandfather, whom I referred to as Heebie-Jeebie, if he had lived longer, I might have gotten more stories out of him. I might have learned more about how he came to Ramapo. I might have heard from his lips what he thought about his children. But he journeyed when I was four years of age, so the first stories I collected were all I had to work with from him. He came over most days around 10 in the morning. I was sickly and tethered to a massive head that anchored me to wherever my mother put me down. He came into the house and he dragged me over to his easy chair and he lifted me into his lap. We shared a chocolate bar from his flannel shirt pocket. He talked in a fashion that allowed for an ongoing narrative that seemed to travel through his life, connecting local lore with casual acquaintances. Some stories he repeated from various angles and perspectives. One of those was about the salamander. Oh, the salamander. Mm. He's in the fire, you know. Yep, yep, yep. He, he, he is the fire himself, the salamander is. You can see his tongue licking at the logs. He, he teases those who search for the metal in the rock. Salamander, he is a shapeshifter. I did not know who this salamander was, But sometime later, I learned from Uncle Mal that the salamander was a spirit that escaped the forge fires of the German ironworkers. Mal told me that those early ironworkers in the Ramapo region had learned the secrets of finding ore in the rock. They had come to Torn Mountain to extract this precious ore. 
He said there was one, an ironmaster by the name of Hugo, who had not kept the custom of dousing his forge fire every seven years, and as a result, the salamander escaped to plague Hugo's family thereafter. This tormented the poor man's life until the salamander shapeshifted into a handsome young man to get at Hugo's beautiful daughter, Mary. But this was the salamander's undoing, for he fell in love with Mary, not the sort of thing a proper devil ought to do. Mal was not sure what became of the salamander or Mary or Hugo or any of the people in the story after that. It would be years before I would learn. I would learn this from a book called Myths and Legends of Our Own Land by Charles Skinner, who spoke of the story as having Rosicrucian sources from perhaps the mid-1600s. It's not clear as to the credibility of Skinner's version, or for that matter, even his geography. He placed the story at High Tor or Torn Mountain, which he identifies as the same place, despite the fact that today these are two different ridgetops, the former being along the Hudson Shore and the latter being at the heart of the Ramapos, some 12 miles inland. Furthermore, he identifies this mountain as being the final home of Amasis, youngest of the Magi, who followed the star of Bethlehem. With so much mixed folklore and history, it's hard to know the rightful place this story plays in the Ramapo culture. But that a metaphysical creature called Salamander emerging from the forge fire was part of local lore does seem to resonate with the area. For even the casual chat of a backyard 4th of July celebrant made note of the alternating glow in the barbecue coals, calling it the Salamander. Look at that there. It's the Salamander. In time, I would learn that the Rosicrucians were an early 1600s Christian cult that acquainted itself with the alchemists, the folks who mixed physical science with metaphysics. Contemporary physicists have a tendency to see the alchemists as their predecessors, allowing for a magical speculation in the early years of the natural law definition. But it is the influence of such a story as the Salamander that interests me here. In the Early industrialization of the Hudson Highlands, the Ramapo Salamander stands out as a curious and prophetic tale. It's questionable to what degree it personifies the man-nature relationship, and there is no denying that the story hung in the air through at least three centuries. This was the retelling of a story by Skinner in 1896, an insight to the early industrial mindset, or perhaps this was just a folky interpretation after the fact. You see, the place I grew up in is steeped in story. While white alarmist stories of adventurers fighting the Indians abound, oral animistic tales seep through the rural culture along the outer edges of the encroaching suburban landscape. The Ramapo River Basin, as it drains through the valley known to the earlier colonists as the Ramapo Pass, was the setting of Patriot-Tory conflict through the years of the American Revolution. The narrative of this place was already a complex mix of old and new world culture by the closing years of the 18th century. Coming to know how a story began and what fueled its influence on the way, on the way things are and how they can be, is both an external and internal journey. Local histories, record books, newspaper archives, historic accounts offer dates and names but are seasoned by the bias of the historians and the publishers, riddled with agenda, so it is the internal study back through family stories and elders' keepsake that filters the dogma of local history. 
During my seventh year at the Sacred Heart grade school, I happened upon the conflict between the telling of history and the experience of history. I was a poor student whose mind was seldom with the text and always out on some woodland trail tracking wildlife. I had managed to skip nearly 12 weeks of school the year before during trapping season and somehow completed enough work to squeeze into seventh grade when my new homeroom nun, Sister Catherine Ann Luke, took it upon herself to salvage what little academic ambition might be buried deep in my soul. She discovered I was trapping, so she asked me to bring in some animal skins into class the next day. I was not trusting of this request, but I did bring them the next day in a brown paper bag, and she had me stand in front of the class and offer a lecture on the animals, the animals I had trapped. Now, most of the kids were suburban transplants, so anything woodland was foreign to them. I was a hit, an instant hit. There were many classes in our school, and she had me go on a tour to all of these classes, lecturing on woodlore for the next few weeks. And then our school principal attended, and, well, she heard me speak casually of our animal ancestors, and she put an end to my lecture. She even had my folks come in to see her, and she told them, well, she said she was very sorry, but I was a pagan. This led to a series of unfortunate episodes, including some fistfights in the playground, and I believe Sister Catherine Ann Luke was also penalized for encouraging my seemingly less-than-Christian behavior. Desperate to hang on to something salvageable in me, she asked that I research the early history of Ramapo and write a term paper. A term paper? Well, I did. I had sources, and I gave it to her. And weeks later, Sister Catherine Ann Luke sat me down and told me my little paper was marvelous. I had offered an early look at our local native population and then focused on the Ramapo area during the War of Independence and then told some things about the Ramapo ironworks. My dad, Walt Stead, he used to take me up to Cranberry Lake, which was on a track of land owned by the Ramapo Land Company for night fishing. Sometimes we tossed out lines for catfish and sat along the shore. In the cool evenings, there might be just enough breeze to keep the mosquitoes off. But on warm summer nights, when the air was still, the mosquitoes were waiting for us. Then we took an old rowboat out into the lake. It was kept hidden by my brother-in-law, Tony, who worked for the land company, who had easy access to the hidden places along the lakeshore. He was a friendly, talkative sort who had married my big sister, Joan. And, well, he was always willing to indulge Walt in the use of his leaky old wooden boat. One night, we sat there, drifting slowly along the middle of the lake, our minnows line, it was out for bass. Walt directed my attention to the Pearson house. He told me that the Pearson family had industrialized the Ramapo Pass and that at one time or another, most all the old families had been employed by the Ramapo works. I looked along the shoreline to where the stately home sat and I imagined a wealthy mogul with a big mustache and a top hat and a watch chain, something like the character in Monopoly. I wondered if he even had a single lens eyepiece. The next day I no longer wondered, as Walt brought me up to meet Mr. Henry Pearson himself. This was more than a cordial visit. Walt came with a formal request for me to be allowed to trap the Torn Valley, which was then part of the land company holdings. We were met at the front door by a servant, a dark-skinned woman who could have been foreign and who asked us to wait in the hall while she announced us. 
We stood in what was a surprisingly dark hall with a few portraits of earlier Pearsons looking rather complacent about their lot in life. Then a strong presentation of womanhood came in from the dining room, and she offered Walt her hand while exclaiming that Henry was in his study waiting for us. I noticed that she spoke with a certain air, a presence as if there was something important going on. This was Cornelia Pearson, the wife of Henry Pearson. She looked down at me and asked if I was Walter Stead Jr. Walt told her that I was, but he added that he called me Chucky. She nodded with approval, and she said to me, Well, Chucky, you look like a fine young man. I am sure Mr. Pearson will approve of you. This was all very theatrical, and I felt extremely self-conscious. But nonetheless, I thanked her and followed my dad into Mr. Pearson's study. The room we entered will forever be etched in my memory. It was a library, all done in polished wooden bookcases and cabinets, built into the walls, with easy chairs and reading lamps, and a fine writing desk near to a series of windows that looked out upon the lake. Mr. Pearson looked nothing like the Monopoly robber baron character. In fact, he was not in any way imposing. He had an easy, soft-spoken manner. He, he was in casual attire. There was something gentle, if not even tenuous. He was, well, he was what Walt would call laid back. He offered us seating in a leather couch, and he resumed his seat next to the desk in an easy chair. He and Walt talked first about the lake fish, and then about the troublesome snapping turtles that periodically took down a duck or two, and then about hunting and trapping on land company property in the Torn Valley. Apparently, this was the right of only land company employees. But we were like legacy as a result of my grandfather's time with the ironworks. While they chatted in slow, regular voices, I looked to the bookshelves. I scanned the collection, along with sets of Cooper, Melville, and Hawthorne. There were a great many leather-bound volumes, atlases, Bibles, histories, and, well, I saw a thick copy of Cole's History of Rockland County, and an old copy of Green's History of Rockland County, an original copy of Claudius, the Cowboy of the Ramapos by Johnson, and they were all written pretty much in the late 19th century. But there were also some more recent books like Bedell's Now and Then and Long Ago in Rockland County and, and Penfold's Romantic Suffering. I wondered how a person could have such time to do all this reading and what sort of knowledge could be gained from it. And then I heard Mr. Henry Pearson addressing me. I looked at his calm and distant face and he said, I'm sure you'll be a good and safe trapper, Woodsy. Then he reached around to his desk, and he took hold of a soft-covered book. It had a gray paper cover with a blue spine. He handed it to me. The cover had blue lettering at the center, which read, The Ramapo Pass by E.F. Pearson. He said, My father, Edward Franklin, he wrote this in 1915. My cousin, Pearson Mapes, he edited it in 1955. I want you to read it. I opened to the first page, the title page, and written in a ballpoint across the top, it read, Please return to Henry L. Pearson, Slotsburg, New York. Although I tried more than once over the years, Mr. Pearson never accepted it back. He always told me I needed to read it some more. That's pretty cool. 
You don't get a spirit guide like that very much in life. <laughs> Take a look. Take a look. There, there it is. is. There's the book. Okay. Oh, wow. And look what's inside it. It's right. It should be right inside. It's a letter from Henry Pearson. <laughs> wow. Stan. Wow. I was doing a project on Claudius Smith. Remember I mentioned he had an original copy of a Claudius Smith book? Yes. Yeah. I was doing that up here in Goshen, and I invited him, and he, and he wrote back. And oh. I had used some of the material that I'd found in, in uh, Ramapo Pass. When was that? I uh, think not, I got it. That was 1982. But okay. go ahead, read the letter. This so, you know. says, uh, Dear Chuck, <laughs> thank you for your entertaining letter. I am very sorry that we will not be able to get to lecture, I believe Yeah, it is. probably. We'll yeah. not be able to get to lecture on Claudius Smith on January 22nd. But look forward to seeing you play on his life. Yeah, I, I wrote a play on Claudius. Yeah. Oh, wow. When you have completed it. I have no immediate need for the Ramapo Pass, so <laughs> keep it a while longer if you are finding it useful. I do not know where you could find a copy to buy as it is out of print. All good wishes, sincerely, Henry Pearson, January 15th, 1982. So he gave that to me in 1964 on loan. Wow. Uh, and I mentioned... You're before I, I was born. Yeah, and I mentioned, I, I try to give it back to him, and he keeps saying, well, there you've got a letter from him in 1982. Junior in high school. A couple decades later, <laughs> right? And he's saying, I still don't want it back. <laughs> wow, that's great. This looks great. I mean, this guy... Yeah, that's pretty good. This guy was yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. a part of the history he's writing about. And one of the things that that book has, I directed my, my good friend Ed Lennick, who we're going to talk about uh, in another episode. He has a record in that Ramapo Pass, that family history book, about uh, a deacon working on behalf of uh, the Ramapo Ironworks who goes tramping off into the woods near Hilburn and finds the Ramapo Indians doing a, a corn ceremony and celebration. This would have been in the 1880s, and it's in direct relationship to what their native culture is all about, and it's exactly what people like, we'll talk about David Cohen in a few episodes, denied existed. It's so interesting. Hmm. That's what I meant about how sometimes you got to look deep into family histories to find these things. Right. And how did your father come to know th this person? Well, the Pearsons owned the ironworks, and Grandpa worked at the ironworks. Okay. PBGB man. Oh, right, Grandpa worked right. there. So Walt, and you'll hear in the next story, Walt and, and the sons would sometimes also work over there doing things, helping out. And uh, so they knew Davidson, R.J. Davidson, and Davidson worked for Henry Pearson. So the Pearsons would you know, connect to this. They didn't necessarily work yeah. at the ironworks. They owned them. Yeah, and because right. they started all of that, and uh, so they There's were like Pearson, like Pearson's, like yeah, Pearson, like Pearson, yeah. like that's them, that's, that's them. Yeah. They, yep. You know what I found a little disappointing was that what happened to you at school. You have to ask yourself the question: What are they afraid of? Why is Governor DeSantis afraid of us teaching people about what happened to the African Americans? Yeah, how yes. they got here, what happened to them when they got here, things like that. What is he afraid of? Well, they use the excuse that uh, that we'll be shaming our children, which is no. ridiculous. Um, <coughs> They'll be fine. We need to no. teach our children these things <coughs> so that these things don't happen again. And no, we're not shaming anyone. We are educating them. So they know that we didn't come from, you know, we weren't all good. We weren't all wonderful. In fact, we did some pretty horrible things. 
we are all struggling to form a more perfect union. Right. We didn't land here in perfection. Right. And we'll never achieve perfection. We must always strive for perfection. And so when the the nun stopped you from from telling these stories, which are important, these are stories, what you were talking about is what makes us curious. People hear this and they say, I want to find out more. I want to go out into the woods and, and see what Chuck's talking about. When you stop people from doing that, you you stop them from evolving, well, I'll tell from you, becoming all they can be. When that happened, you it can... buggered me. It really hurt me. I didn't understand it, you know. And uh, and Sister Catherine Ann Luke was penalized in some way as well. You know, we were, we were all sort of slammed down. What a shame. Uh, but, but she's kind but, of a hero. But she's the, the hero. Story. She's the hero because then she says, I want you to take this to the next level. Write about it. Right. Put this into something, you know, and... Uh, and she didn't know I had sources like Ramapo Pass. She didn't know I had that stuff. Right. And so it really made sense for me to write about it because I have access to these things. I had Cole's history. Tony had gotten me a copy of Cole's history. So I had all these interesting local histories. Yeah. And then what came of that was she had me read it out loud in class. And the kids thought, oh, I'm going to read about hunting. And then I started talking about Ramapo Indians and the kids started, and these are little schmarmy white suburban transplants, and they were saying, we got no Indians. And I was saying, sure we do. And I started saying that, so I wound up getting into the next level of talking about this, thanks to Sister Catherine Ann Luke. Yep. And in the playground was where it really happened. I did get in fistfights because they were little racist kids. Right. And so I'd get into fistfights. But as soon as they started, they would stop because there were other kids who objected to that. You know, I, I really didn't have to defend myself because a whole bunch of people would start defending me in that moment. It basically started a conversation. It, it did, and it was a good com. Even though, even though I got punched Either in the way, head a yeah. bunch of times, it was a good conversation <laughs> because it got kids. It's an all-white school, guys, and it got kids in an all-white school to start really talking about the things which, right. by the way, their parents did not want them to talk about. And again, Sister Catherine Ann Luke, she was the hero because she, you know, parent-teacher night, they came and complained to her. And, uh, and she fended it off. She was great. I, I feel like Sister Catherine, Catherine Ann, Luke. Ann Luke made you from Chucky the Trapper to Chucky the Writer. Yeah, it moved. That's how I feel. It was a nice, yeah. <laughs> and you know what's really fun about that this? That term paper. It, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the ignition. And, and I remember the right. term paper. I can't do that. You know? I know. <laughs> But she had a way. She was a, a very good educator because just like bringing the pelts in, I didn't want to do that. But she had a way to encourage you. She did it in a positive way. And this is just for fun. Um, all these years later, my wife's name, Kat, is Catherine. And my stepson's name is Luke. Mm-hmm. Oh, How about wow. that? Catherine and Luke. Yeah. <laughs> How about that? That's, uh, that's, 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 that's kind that of special. That can't just be a coincidence. No, I, no. I didn't choose that. He's my that's stepson. I didn't even name him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what occurs to me all, all through our lives, we meet people like Sister Catherine yes. and Luke who will not be broken. And, and the lesson is don't be broken. Don't stop. Don't give up. Yes, it is deeply frustrating at times you read the news and you see it day after day it's hard to understand how people cannot see your 30,000 foot picture resulting from the things that they say and that they do i mentioned ron DeSantis's rejection of black history that's outrageous it's disgusting can you imagine somebody saying to us well we're not going to talk about the british and what happened there anymore we're just going to stop you know that we're going to remove that from history it's right. an outrage it is 
unconscionable. And if we allow it to happen there or any place else, yeah, you know, it, it's yeah. just a terrible thing. So your story about Sister Catherine Ann Luke today, it, to me, is inspiring. It tells me that no matter what, yes, we're going to be confronted by naysayers, by people who would like to shut us up. We must never, ever give in to that. Never. Yeah. We have to keep on speaking our truth to power. We have to keep on connecting the dots. We have to keep on calling it out for what it is and not whitewashing it. You know, no pun intended. I was here, just but- say, <laughs> no <laughs> That's an interesting yeah. analogy. You know, uh, she had heard that uh, the principal said I was a pagan. And um, I didn't even know what that meant, but, you know, she'd heard this. And uh, she, one of the things, and she was good at this. She sat me down and she said, nothing bad happened. You did nothing wrong. And she also said, good for her. you know who you are. Yep. And I, I honestly, intellectually, I couldn't comprehend why she was saying that to me, but it didn't matter. She was laying in the track. Yep. And I would, I would work with that track. You yeah. Know? Because that and could also... That's what we do with kids. That's what's so important. That's what we give them. And that name calling that your principal did, it could really stunt your growth, literally. Yeah. Because if Catherine and Luke uh, hadn't come up to you and said that to you, yeah. even though you didn't understand it then, later on, it would all make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as you said before, you said that, uh, yeah, I took some hits to the head. I took some punches. and then, Well, we know that many people took a lot of hits and punches and oh, a dog lot worse. bites yeah. um, fighting for what they believed in and yeah. fighting for change. You know, the day that we stop letting our children know that our military gave the Indians blankets filled with smallpox is a day... We- we're going to cease to exist as a country because our children need to know this. Tommy, it was okay. I took punches to the head. Yeah. I have a very hard head. Any kid that punched my head regretted it. <laughs> they hurt their hand. I noticed that. Yeah. Well, listen, folks, this is another uh, excellent segment of our series, and I think we're getting somewhere here. Let's keep this conversation going. Okay? Okay. That's all for this week. Thanks so much. Dr. Chuck, what are we going to talk about next week? Well, next week we're going to do part two of the Iron from Stone chapter, and we'll wrap that section up. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Tom. Welcome. Great. See you next week.